Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Price of Victory. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Reject False Teachers. put this as kindly as possible, but I also wish to say this as strongly as possible. There is in the Christian world today a gullibility that's shocking. Teachers and preachers who would have been soundly rejected a mere generation ago are now accepted and listened to with great joy by people who have no idea they are false teachers. Books that were once written to warn the faithful about the major heresies of the day are now left to gather dust on the shelf. In a recent conversation with an evangelical leader, I was shocked to hear him say that he believed that Mormon theology was Christian. So I guess it doesn't matter anymore if you're a monotheist or a polytheist. In effect, you know, you're still a Christian if you just say you you believe in Jesus. But that's just one example. I know that sometimes the important theological lines of truth are abandoned over against a wider commitment to a political cause. You know, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis' wonderful book entitled The Screwtape Letters. The book was an imaginary set of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon on how to best subvert a Christian. You know, one of the things that Screwtape mentions is that it is important to subvert believers into thinking that Christianity is a means to an end rather than the end itself. That is, get them to see Christianity as a helpful tool to a political ideal rather than to see the ultimate good or the ultimate cause or the ultimate truth to which we cling to be the pure truth of knowing God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But once the truth of Jesus is abandoned as the ultimate objective, we begin to leave room for error. And that was Lewis' point in the Screwtape Letters. Did you know there was a time when pastors and theologians and Bible teachers all thought it was a part of their task not only to teach the truth, but also to warn about errors? You know, it's hard to know all the reasons why that was abandoned. I mean, perhaps we became tired of confrontation. I mean, who wants to constantly be on a warfare footing? I mean, perhaps we bought into the spirit of the age in which sincerity of belief was more important than truth. You know, I've been fascinated how it has become popular in our day to no longer talk about what we used to call, you know, my perspective. Now we've transformed that into saying my truth, as if there was such a thing as my personal truth. There is not. You don't own the truth. Truth stands apart from you. But truth must be defended lest we become strangers to the truth. So let me say it again. There must be a clarion call. Truth matters. Truth is objective. It is not possible to know God and to be cavalier about the truth. And therefore, it also matters that we expose error, for error is an enemy of truth. We've been studying a section in 2 Corinthians where we've noticed the Apostle Paul is in a pitched battle with the false teachers who have come into the church in Corinth. But Paul is also in a battle to reach out to the rebellious minority in the church who are still listening to the false teachers. Let's hear what he has to say. And today I'm reading 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 6. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So please notice that Paul begins with the words, I wish you would bear up with a little bit of foolishness. And so, you know, we immediately ask, why does he say that? You know, it doesn't seem foolish to take on false teachers. Why even suggest that what he's doing is foolish? We might interject here and say, Paul, it's not silly what you're doing. It's wise. And it reflects that you're deeply concerned with how easily a certain minority in the church are being sucked in. You show that you're compassionate with a gullible. And yet Paul says, put up with my foolishness, won't you? So why does he start that way? And before I answer why Paul says that, let me take you to a proverb, in fact, to two proverbs. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I hope you see the dilemma in those two proverbs. If you answer a fool, you're going to sink to his level, and the fool's going to think, look how profound my arguments are. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. (laughs) But if you don't answer a fool, the fool thinks, look, I've left the guy speechless. That's how weighty my arguments are. So it turns out it doesn't matter, does it? Answer him or not, the fool always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and his arguments are unassailable. There's almost nothing you can do about a fool. Now back to the false teachers. You know, they've been practicing one-upmanship. We're better looking than Paul. We have a more commanding presence than he has. We're better public speakers and preachers than he is. We can even get a bigger crowd than he can. And later, they're even going to boast that they make more money than Paul. And Paul, you might argue, is better off just to walk away from these guys. I mean, how do you win that kind of a debate? But if he ignores these men, what will happen to that gullible minority in Corinth who are still listening to these men? You see, Paul knows that he's forced to respond, and it's going to look foolish to do so, but the souls of the minority in Corinth are at stake. He must risk it. He must engage in what he calls a little foolishness. And so with the false teachers watching, Paul writes to the rebellious minority, the holdouts, those who have refused to repent. And in this section before us, we're going to see that he has three things he wants to say. First, you're being violated by the false teachers. Second, you're being deceived by the false teachers. And third, you have misunderstood what's ultimately important. So let's start with the first point. The false teachers are violating you. Look again at verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now there's an image there, the one of betrothal. And you've probably heard messages about betrothal, especially at Christmas time. And if you have, you'll know that betrothal was different from what we now think of as an engagement. Betrothal was a formal ceremony in which both families from both sides would get together and celebrate. So from our vantage point, it would look very much like, well, a marriage ceremony. 
But of course it wasn't. That's because immediately after the betrothal, both the man and the woman would go back to their parents' home and rarely see each other until the wedding day. And furthermore, you couldn't break a betrothal without an official certificate of divorce. So betrothal was a formal legal matter. In some ways, you might consider the couple married, only they didn't share intimacy and they didn't live together. During the time of betrothal, any sexual relations would have been thought of as adultery. Indeed, in that culture, the father of the bride took on a very unique role. According to Deuteronomy chapter 22, the father's role was to safeguard his daughter's virginity until the time of the marriage. You have to kind of get a picture in your head to understand this. You know, if any young man were hanging around and talking to the man's betrothed daughter, you know, it's likely the father would come out and drive the man away with rocks, threatening him should he even come within shouting distance of his daughter. She was betrothed. She was set aside for her husband. This was a time of preparation and expectation, not a time for associating with any other man, no matter if they said their intentions were honorable or dishonorable. You know, Paul's talking about the role that God entrusted to him when he had won the converts in Corinth to Christ and when he formed them into a church. Paul says, I'm like the dad who's driving away men who want to seduce my daughter. And he's ensuring that when the wedding day has occurred, she would be dressed in white in the garments of a virgin. So here's an image. The husband is Christ. The marriage, no doubt, is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great consummation of all that was hoped for. The bride is the church who will be presented before her Lord in spotless robes. Paul says, I'm the dad, and the false teachers have been those who have wanted to take away your purity. If you think I have an aggressive attitude toward them, the answer is, I have. I'm jealous for the pure joy of your wedding day. So that's the role of every faithful pastor and every faithful Bible teacher and every faithful Christian leader. Christian leaders are expected to throw rocks to keep the devil's dogs from the flock. They realize what's at stake and they do all they can to ensure that the faith is pure. So what can we say? Well, if you, my dear listener, do pay attention to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, but you're also listening to and delighting in false teachers, well, you're like a woman who's betrothed, who delights in secret trysts. That's an unfaithful bride. That's, that's what's at stake. During the month of March, we'll be highlighting the international efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Did you know that our radio program with Dr. John airs in India and neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Eastern China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran? If ensuring that your brothers and sisters around the world have access to daily Bible teaching is important to you, you can help. Your gift toward Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would help develop and encourage pastors in India and help reach thousands of people with trusted Bible teaching programs across much of Asia and the Middle East. To support our international ministries, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've listened to Paul's first point to the rebellious minority in Corinth. To remain with the false teachers is like committing adultery. 
And if you wonder that I, as your apostle, am so vicious with them, says Paul, please understand that I have an assigned role, and it's to protect you. I'm jealous for your purity. Now, please understand that when Paul is using this language, he's referring specifically to false doctrines, false teachings, twisted teaching about Christ and his gospel. And the difficult thing about false teaching is that those who believe them don't think that they're included in this warning. They think they're believing in true things. They listen to their favorite teachers and think everything is good, not knowing that they're actually swallowing poison. So why is that? Well, the answer is that they've been deceived. And so we come to the second point that Paul's making. You know, in the first point, he's speaking about doctrinal purity, and now he addresses the matter of deception. After all, it is through deception that people lose their purity to Christ. Verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So do you see how deception works? It functions in the same fashion as it did for Eve. Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and consider what it is that led Eve into sin. You know, at the first, Satan began by asking Eve a question. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? At the outset, this is already the first step towards deception. But it's a deception that the woman seems to counter. No, no, she says, you're wrong. We may eat from all the trees with the exception of but one. But in another sense, Satan has already succeeded. You know, instead of concentrating her mind on the blessing that God has provided, Satan wants her to think about the restriction that God has made. Look, he says, how God has taken from you what you might have enjoyed. This is a restrictive God. And then having placed the first seed of doubt in her mind, he goes in for the the major attack. So God has said no to that tree, indicating that when you eat of it, you're surely going to die. But in fact, God's deceiving you. You're not going to die. And in an instant, Eve is faced with something she's never faced before in her life. See, on the one hand, God says you will die. And on the other hand, the serpent says you will not die. So who are you going to believe? In essence, that's what Paul says has happened when the false teachers in Corinth have showed up. On the one hand, Paul said one thing. And then the false teachers said the opposite. So who are you supposed to believe? And many in Corinth were deeply confused. I mean, maybe we should just keep listening to both. See, up till now in our study, I've not addressed the matter of who the false teachers were and what is it that they were teaching. And in truth, we can only guess. But we do get a hint of it from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two, And there Paul, making his defense, says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. You know, it so seems quite likely they're Jews. Well, we also know from back in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, we remember that these teachers were comparing themselves to others, and in the process, they were bragging about how holy they were. More holy than others, they said. That's probably all we know. Well, it might be that they were Judaizers who taught that unless you keep the Jewish dietary laws, you can't be saved. Paul never mentions that in the Corinthian letters. And it might be that they taught works righteousness, that is, you have to perform certain good works in order to be saved and go to heaven. But again, Paul doesn't mention that either. And so to a large degree, we're left to guess what it is that they were teaching. But we do know something about their deception, and that's found in verse 4, so look at it again. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, 
or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You see, says Paul, you're being deceived in three ways. First, these teachers are preaching another Jesus. So whatever we make of that phrase, it must mean that they were teaching something about Jesus that was not in accordance with the real Jesus in history. Think of it this way. You know, my name is John. Now, someone can be talking about John, but they might not be talking about me at all. In the same way, says Paul, the false teachers are always talking about Jesus, but they're not talking about the real Jesus of history. And we get hints of that from 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where John says, Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. See, John was dealing with, with some teachers who were arguing for a Jesus that was more in keeping with Greek philosophy than the Jesus of history. You know, a Jesus who only appeared human but was, in fact, pure spirit, not polluted by a human body. And John was fighting that battle. Again, we don't know which battle Paul was fighting, but he was fighting with people who were portraying Jesus in a different fashion than he actually was. So then Paul speaks about a different spirit, and he doesn't say if he means a different Holy Spirit or a different spirit as in, for instance, the spirit of legalism or something like that, but it's a different spirit than the spirit of genuine Christianity. It's a false alternative. And the gullible never picked up on that. And then finally, he speaks about a different gospel. And it's this last phrase that's especially telling. Do you remember what Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 1.8? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You see, there's only one gospel. The real gospel is not the gospel of works, nor is it the gospel of keeping Jewish dietary laws, nor is it the gospel of human potential. The real gospel portrays us as helpless sinners and Jesus as the perfect Savior. Salvation coming through grace, through faith alone, and not by what we can produce. See, I know of preachers today that teach the gospel of possibilities, human potential. One preacher teaches his followers to confess that, you know, we're powerful. That we're good. We, we can do anything. Well, you can't believe that and hold to the gospel. You're committing adultery on Jesus if you try. And you're doing it and you're being deceived just like Eve was. You can't vacillate between two opposing views. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's facing off with the prophets of Baal. And in the confrontation, Elijah addresses the people of Israel and he says this, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Well, that wasn't acceptable for Elijah. And it certainly wasn't acceptable for Paul either. And so having explained that limping between two opinions is spiritual adultery, and having explained that all this comes from deception, Paul then comes to the point at which so many had departed from him and gone to the false teachers. The false teachers are such good speakers, and Paul, you don't hold a candle to them. That's what they said. So we come to verses 5 and 6. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. I love Paul's sarcasm here. Super apostles, indeed. 
They're not even apostles at all. But just as they have been hyping themselves up, Paul now takes it to an extreme level. Super apostles, men whose authority are higher than anyone else. Do you actually believe that? And then he adds, look, I know what they say about me. I know they say I'm unskilled in speaking, and for that reason, they say I'm deficient. But even if I am unskilled, and notice he's not saying that he is, but even if he was, he says, that can't be used against me. I am not unskilled in knowledge. And so Paul's asking the followers of the false teachers, which do you prefer? Do you prefer style or substance, flashy performance on a big stage, or depth of truth about Jesus and his gospel? What ultimately is your preference? You've got to answer that. I know that most of us are going to say, you know, I know I prefer substance to style. Well, that's easily said. Paul says, guess what? The proof is going to be in the pudding. And it might be asked of all of us. The teachers that you prefer, what is it that they've taught you about the attributes of God, the nature of the Son, the nature of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church, the doctrine of last things, human depravity, how grace is possible, God's activity in creation, about the fall, about the final judgment to come, and a host of these biblical matters. Are your teachers forcing you to get your nose into the Bible and study it with a greater intensity than ever before? Or are you just listening to them because you like hearing them? Answer those questions and you're going to know if it's style or if it's substance. Isn't it time that we make a choice and stop limping between two opinions? Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, why do you think it is that so many people are are quick almost to defend false teachers or bristle at the idea of confronting false teaching? You know, Ben, I think that uh, a great many in uh, the evangelical community today are far more interested in, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, they like the person or uh, whether or not, uh, you know, they feel that emotionally that person has met an emotional need that they have or, you know, or something, uh, you know, either they perform well and they love to see them perform, but we have all sorts of things now in the evangelical community that has taken the place over truth. And, and when truth gets put in second place or sometimes even third and fourth place, well, you know, it's so easy for us to be deceived. And then for someone to say, look, that is not the truth, uh, immediately people take offense. So I don't know how to solve that. I know that that's what's going on. That's the reason. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement from a listener. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. And another listener wrote, thanks for these blessed words, Dr. Newfeld." As a Bible-studying student, it's encouraging to hear this type of message. Thank you to both of these supporters and all who welcome our Bible teaching into your home. Make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you 
in your spiritual journey. For more information or to give support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.